0: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Alan, I hear you uh,
1: made it through quite the obstacle course to be with us here today.
2: My car, my trusty Subaru, which I love so much, my, my cherry red Subaru Outback, it decided to turn on me. The uh, The trunk refuses to open or refused to open and it would just beep and it was terrible because cause it, it got stuck in the closed position, but it thinks it's open and Hello. when the trunk is open and you start to try to drive, the car beeps at you, which is ordinarily good. But if the trunk is closed and the car just beeps at you with this incessant like
1: beep, 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 beep.
2: And, it, and it's been doing this for three days now, but it will stop beeping after like 30 seconds of driving. But if you stop, it'll start beeping again. So my wife and I have been like planning out our routes for the last three days in terms of like, what are the stop signs that we feel comfortable kind of rolling through? And so finally, it was- Are fixed. you
1: admitting to traffic violations on a podcast?
2: I would say it was, they were very safe rolls through. And- <laughs> Only when there was clearly no no traffic, come on. Who among us has not rolled through a stop sign?
1: This is like the the movie Speed with uh, Keanu Reeves. Except it's it does just it does have a little bit of, of that vibe
0: to that. Um, I will also say because Alan does not live here in Washington D.C., the uh, the stop sign camera capital of the world. Um, he does not run the same risk of very large tickets for rolling through uh, stop signs that. Uh, the, the residents of the District of Columbia do.
2: Just to be clear, when, when I say rolling through, I, I mean you drive at two miles an hour because I think like uh-huh. if, you, if you can get to two miles uh-huh. an hour, the car thinks you haven't stopped and therefore will not restart beeping. But I fixed the problem. It turns out they had to replace the widget in the sprocket with the thing thingameth, whatever. Um, and now, uh, now I can stop at stop signs like a law-abiding and not crazy becoming American.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic, thrilled to be in the Virtual Jungle Studio with my other co-host, Ellen Rosenstein. Hello. And we are flying Scotless this week. Our fearless leader, Scott Anderson, has abandoned us. I am taking the co-host chair, or the host chair. I'm I'm first among co-hosts. Um and we are delighted to be joined by the one and only Molly Reynolds. Hi guys, it's good to be back.
2: Yeah, you're going to be coming back a lot in the next couple of months, Molly, yeah. get used to it.
1: <laughs> exactly. We're discussing two Congress topics this week and so we would not we could not do that without you, Molly. And indeed, thanks to the one and only Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, we are calling this the We Need to Talk About Kevin Again edition because we're pretty sure that we have already used that joke. But we're going to we're gonna drive it into the ground. Um, and that leads me to the three topics in this week's news. So the first topic we'll be discussing, uh, what is impeachment, really? Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy has announced an impeachment inquiry against President Biden, seemingly with the goal of finding something to impeach him over. Will this do anything to hold back the slavering hordes of the GOP far right from coming from McCarthy's speakership? Our second topic uh, is the investigation of the investigation of Donald Trump. House Judiciary Committee Chairman and fearless Trump defender Representative Jim Jordan has fired back against Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis over the Georgia state indictment of Donald Trump, announcing that he's planning to investigate Willis for engaging in what he terms a politically motivated prosecution. Willis has responded by accusing Jordan of seeking to obstruct a Georgia criminal proceeding. What kind of authority, if any, does Congress actually have to conduct this kind of oversight? And for our third topic, we are moving beyond the first branch of government to discuss, of course, Elon Musk once again. A new biography by Walter Isaacson has sparked some controversy thanks to Isaacson's description of a decision by Musk to turn off Starlink coverage near Crimea to block a Ukrainian maneuver there over the course of the war. Isaacson has, to some extent, walked back his own reporting on this, but the incident still raises questions about Musk's influence and power on the global stage and his ability as a private actor to shape the course of war. So for our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you.
2: So as I was telling Molly before we started recording, uh, one of the things that I, I love whenever Molly makes an appearance on Rational Security, beyond, of course, her expertise and her wit and just general delightful smile... Uh, Is that because Molly Reynolds knows literally everything there is to know about Congress, it makes my job as the person introducing these topics very simple because I can just turn to Molly and say, hey, Molly, so what's going on here? So, Molly... What's going on here? Uh, what what exactly is it that Kevin McCarthy did? Uh, my understanding is that usually when the House wants to impeach the president, there's an actual vote by the House to start an impeachment inquiry, and that Kevin McCarthy, as recently as two weeks ago, said that that was going to be how it was going to be, uh, and then yet in its last you know on Tuesday he just directed the House to begin an impeachment inquiry, whatever that means. So what does that mean, and why did he do it?
0: Sure. So yes, um, we're recording this on Wednesday. Earlier this week, Kevin McCarthy had a press conference and he said that he was directing uh, relevant House committees to uh, open an impeachment inquiry uh, into President Biden. This is, in a lot of ways, very similar to a press conference that Nancy Pelosi held in September of 2019, doing exactly the same thing. Notably, Several weeks after Pelosi's version of this press conference, the House did have a formal vote to open an impeachment uh, inquiry in the first impeachment of President Trump. All of the reporting this time around uh, indicates that Republicans do not plan to do that. I think in large part because it is not at all clear that they have the votes within the Republican conference to adopt a resolution formally starting an impeachment inquiry. There are a number of um, folks who have said publicly that they are not convinced that it's the right thing to do at this juncture. And then just given the number of House Republicans who represent districts that Joe Biden won in 2020, it Certainly would be a heavy political lift if McCarthy actually brought a resolution on impeachment, on an impeachment inquiry to the floor. So there are sort of a couple of questions that flow from this. One is, does it matter? Like, does it matter what Kevin McCarthy did yesterday is unlikely to involve a vote of the full House? And this is, as you might expect, sort of a complicated question. On one hand, there. And there's a law fair piece um, that I wrote with our former colleague, Margaret Taylor in 2019 on this question. There are a number of powers that House committees now have as kind of a matter of course, particularly around subpoenas that in previous decades, they did not have kind of inherently as part of the rules of the House. And so it used to be that if a House committee wanted to do a really vigorous investigation that involved issuing a lot of subpoenas, they needed particular authorization from the House to do that. That's no longer true. Now, if a House committee wants to issue a subpoena, it doesn't need to go to the full House to do that. That uh, power has evolved in the House over time. And so on one level, there are lots of reasons why back in the day, you would have needed a special resolution to authorize an impeachment inquiry that you no longer need because House committees just have more investigative powers than they used to. So on the other hand, there is this argument that somehow impeachment – An impeachment as started by a resolution with a full vote of the House is somehow different from regular oversight. And there is um, a OLC opinion that was released or kind of uh, drafted in January 2020 that makes this argument that says that the House does actually have to have a formal impeachment vote on a resolution um, authorizing an impeachment inquiry for the subpoenas that flow from that to be valid, because again, they are somehow qualitatively different than regular subpoenas. Um, I am skeptical of that argument, but it is out there, and so there there is, I think, an open question as to like, does this matter? And so that's kind of a substantive discussion, and then. Like politically, why does it matter that Kevin McCarthy is do- came out and did this? Um, I think he thinks that this might help mollify some of his more reactionary members on the right end of his conference. Um, I think we saw pretty quickly that that does not necessarily appear to be true. That. They are still unhappy with various things about Kevin McCarthy and how he is leading um, the House Republicans. And so it's not, um, it's not clear to me that as a, if, if part of the choice to announce this this week was to try and bolster his political standing, it's not really clear to me that that's working.
2: Yeah, so there, there's a lot in there and a lot to to draw out. I, I want to focus for a moment on the allusion or the reference you made to the OLC opinion released back in during the first Trump impeachment, in which DOJ, as you said, said that absent a, a you know official House vote beginning an impeachment inquiry, these subpoenas sort of are null and void or, or whatever. This has been going the rounds in the press as kind of a you know ha ha against Republicans because you know an opinion from a Trump OLC is now going to help Biden. And the idea, I think, is that in the absence of a House vote, the you know Biden officials should not feel compelled uh, to cooperate with uh, whatever that these House committees do in terms of investigating uh, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and all of that sort of stuff. And I actually am curious if you think that helps or hurts the impeachment effort, because on the one hand, you could say, well, obviously, if the White House doesn't cooperate, then the impeachment doesn't get the facts it need. the impeachment inquiry doesn't get the facts it needs. And so that harms the impeachment inquiry and helps Biden. But you could also say this isn't actually about like, collecting facts, this is about waging this weird political fight. And if the Biden administration has to choose between, or if the Biden administration decides to take advantage of this opinion from the Trump OLC and not cooperate, it actually kind of almost helps the impeachment, because then they can remain fact free, which is kind of where they're most comfortable, and can still... Yell and scream about how the White House isn't cooperating. I mean, I I, and I guess the more general question is like, should we even think about this as a normal impeachment? Given that it doesn't seem to be trying to do the things that normal impeachment is trying to do, which is like figure out what actually happened. Even though I should also say, like to all the you know Biden apologists, like the Hunter Biden thing, like does not seem great as a general matter. Even though I don't think it rises anywhere near an impeachable offense.
1: Yeah, I can't believe that we elected Hunter Biden
2: as president. (laughs) Touché, Jurassic. Uh,
1: No, but seriously, just to add one point onto that, I mean, Molly, I'm interested in what you think about this. I've been kind of irritated at the horse race political coverage of all this because it seems like it's devolved very quickly into what does this mean for McCarthy, which is like an interesting and important question for reasons we'll talk about. But like typically when someone is impeached, there's like a reason whatever you think of the reason there's like a thing that they did whereas in this it seems like it's vibes and the vibes are not even particularly well defined right the vibes are like hunter biden engaged in some influence peddling question mark question mark question mark question mark
0: yes yeah, so there's a lot here just like alan said there's a lot in my um, initial comments i think one in like slight defense of the kind of horse racy coverage of this. I mean, I think part of why the coverage has gone in that direction immediately is because fundamentally, like, I read this as being about Kevin McCarthy's political problems. Like part of why this is happening now is because I think Kevin McCarthy is trying to solve a political problem. So we should probably talk about whether or not that's going to work, um, particularly because the political problem is actually ultimately a problem about funding the government, which is something about which we and everyone else do and should care deeply that's one thing i'd note the other thing i'd raise is like you both used a version of the phrase like normal impeachment or usually when we have impeachments and i think we need to take a step back and think about well like how has this evolved over time and like the approach to the impeachment power um there is a um, i'll point folks to a um piece on lawfare from last november by our collective dear friend brian cult um called we live in an age of feudal impeachments and that's feudal like unsuccessful not like of the of the feudal system that would be kind of
2: of awesome though
0: (laughs) yeah i don't know what that would look like
2: the the, the peasants put the baron on trial
0: Yeah. But anyway, so but this is, is one of the um, arguments that Brian makes, essentially, that we've had this evolution um, because of our political system in how Congress thinks about its impeachment power to to the point where, like, maybe what we thought of as normal impeachments pre-Trump may just not be a world that we're we're living in anymore. And the last thing I'll say to come back to sort of Alan's first question about how should we think about the OLC opinion is that I think fundamentally as an institutional matter, like the House should not care what OLC should not care. is probably an uh uh, an overstatement, but the House is not bound by what OLC thinks about this, and they should continue to pursue their, over. like, even if I think that the this impeachment inquiry is largely in bad faith and fact-free, like, institutionally, the House does not have to listen to the Department of Justice in how it organizes its rules for and processes for proceeding on, um, on impeachment. And while I think there's, there is an open question of like what the courts would say about this if we, if folks tried to start litigating it, the House under the Democrats like did not proceed in line with this OLC opinion, and like there's no institutionally, I don't see why a Republican-led House should either, because this for me a lot of this is a matter of like congressional power.
2: So yeah, I, I mean, I want to go back to this point that you made, referencing Colt's excellent argument about uh, fut- futile. A futile with a T impeachments, um, and just saying this may be a new normal. And, you know, I, I sort of recall arguments that were made by skeptics of the first Trump impeachment. Uh, um, uh, and, you know, so a lot of those were in bad faith, but there were some like good faith, you know, concerns about the first impeachment, fair enough. And, and you know, a lot of the argument boiled down to look, this is a slippery slope. You know, if, if you, if, if the Democrats impeach Trump, then the next time the Republicans are in power, they're going to impeach. The Democratic president, and so on and so forth. And, you know, if I was one of those folks right now, I would be feeling pretty good. I mean, I'd be feeling bad for the country, but I'd be feeling pretty good in my prognostication. You know, on the other hand, you have to run the counterfactual. Like, is it really the case that if the Democrats had not impeached Trump, we wouldn't be here? Or even if you do run the counterfactual, you still have to ask, well, maybe impeaching Trump was ultimately worth it. And we're just going to have to live in a world where we have constant impeachments. And, like, there are some quote unquote real ones and some quote unquote fake ones. And we're just going to have to deal with both of those things being called impeachments. I'm kind of curious where you stand on the, the the tit for tat dynamics here.
0: Yeah. So I think I, and this is not unique to this impeachment question, but I think it is often a fool's errand to say, if one party did not do X at time T, the other party would not have done Y at time T plus one. As someone who, To take this on a little bit of a tangent, someone who spends quite a lot of my life thinking and talking about the Senate filibuster, this is a continuous um, discussion. Like, If Democrats hadn't gone nuclear in 2013, would Republicans have gone nuclear for Gorsuch in 2017? And I think, to me, history tells us that a party will do a thing when they... Have the votes and think it's important enough to do the thing, and they won't do the thing when they don't have the votes or don't think it's important enough, and um, and so that's that's sort of how I, I read this. I mean, as a as a um, uh, again as someone who just like puts this in a broader context of how parties interact um, in Congress, um, I do think this notion that we have less clarity in this particular moment around like what it is that. Biden is alleged to have done that would rise to the level of impeachment is an important distinction. But the other, and then I guess I'll just say one last thing is that I think sometimes we can also forget that, like, it took House Democrats much longer in 2019 than many people both within the House Democratic Caucus and outside of the House Democratic Caucus, wanted it to, to get to, Quinta is raising her hand, uh, to get to-
1: So many, so many weeks of outrage. uh,
0: To get to impeachment. And for me, one of the things that that really underlines is the way in which impeachment is fundamentally a political question. And I don't mean that in like a pejorative way. I mean that in a like- you have to get the votes. (laughs) But so at the end of the day, like impeachment is what and when a majority of the House of Representatives wants to pursue it. And I think we can ask questions about whether it is constitutionally and um, substantively different than other powers of the House, but it's still fundamentally a question about what does a majority want to do and when.
1: Yeah. So speaking of majorities, I mean, there there's some weird dynamics here, right? Because as you said, McCarthy's jumping into this without a vote. My understanding is that probably the reason that he hasn't wanted a vote is that it's not totally clear that
0: he would get a majority. Yeah, certainly not clear that he would get to a majority without making some part of his caucus, including the part that is most electorally vulnerable, quite angry along the way.
1: Right. And so, and then there's this additional question of, you know, what's going to happen if they engage in an impeachment inquiry, however we're defining both of those words, what ends up happening if they do decide that at some point they need to, you know, move forward with uh, impeachment itself, or some other set of processes that are related, that will require a bunch of Republicans to take really, really awkward, uncomfortable votes. Like, does this actually solve any problems, or because it seems more like it just creates like ten more problems?
2: And, and just to add a, a quick, a quick question on that: I mean, is impeachment inevitable? I mean, Quinta, Quinta's question suggests that. Well, maybe at some point we'll have to think about it. Um, you know, there's another school of thought um that's you know flying around Twitter or X as it's called. I'm not gonna call it X. I'm calling it Twitter forever. And look, X. at some at some point it's gonna go bankrupt and then someone will buy it and obviously rebrand it Twitter again. So I'm just gonna keep calling it Twitter. Um there's a lot a lot of speculation on Twitter that like at this point the the house has essentially committed itself to impeaching Joe Biden. And I'm curious if you think that's true.
0: Yeah, I mean, so it is I think we're gonna talk a little bit more about Jim Jordan in a uh minute. Oh we but, will, dear um,
2: listener. We will.
0: <laughs> but I'll admit that it is kind of hard to imagine if this comes to the Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan just saying, you know what? I'm gonna let this pitch go by. Like not, not gonna not gonna swing at it. So that is. I feel like that's, that's the wrong one.
2: sports ball metaphor given Jim Jordan. He has to be like, "This is the punt I will whiff." I don't know. Isn't isn't he do football sports ball?
1: No, he's that. a wrestler. He's a wrestler. Oh, he's a
2: wrestler. This
0: he's is a wrestler who, who reportedly enabled sexual abuse. Well, I knew that part. Just, and despite having, despite. Having grown up in a part of the country where um, high school wrestling is a big deal, I will admit ignorance to like wrestling terms, so I'm not going to try to uh, to work a metaphor there. So I think that's that's a real consideration here. Like, will Jordan just kind of let this let this die? I think I think generally. One other dynamic that's really important to consider in the context of the impeachment inquiry specifically and then in the general operations of the House Republican Conference, including their efforts to avoid a government shutdown, is that there's some part of the conference whose sort of whole reason for being is to be mad about things. Sometimes that anger is directed at Kevin McCarthy. Um, and so you sometimes hear folks criticize both parties um, for not taking smaller wins when they can get them because they want to keep issues alive um, for campaign purposes. And to me, there's like a little bit of that going on here, too. It's like, when would they actually want to get to the point where they do the actual impeaching, as opposed to just continue talking about impeachment and having hearings that they say are a part of an impeachment inquiry, to like keep this issue, which they seem to care quite a lot about, on the front burner. And I, I don't know what the timing is. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, because someone will want to know about this, is. My least favorite discourse is the what is an impeachment inquiry actually discourse. My second least favorite discourse is can the Senate not have a trial if the House <laughs> impeaches the president? <laughs> um, Hell yes. I, Let's go.
2: I would love a list. Le- can I just say, I feel like a Patreon <laughs> exclusive should be just be Molly Reynolds just reading down her list of least favorite discourses.
0: <laughs> They're all extremely niche, but they all, um, I, I i have a lot of feelings about them. Um, and like the short answer to that question is, again, like the Senate, there's a whole host of ways that the Senate could probably dispense with an impeachment that came over from the House short of having a full trial if there are enough votes to do so. But it does, I, I bring this up, though, because one of the other things you um, have started to see reporting on is like whether Republican senators are really... Jazzed about doing this. Um, And the answer is, some of them appear to be not especially excited about having to do this. Um, In part because I think, again, we can like talk a little bit more about the relationship between this and the coming possible government shutdown, is that like Republican senators by and large are more interested in like doing appropriations bills and making sure that funding to Ukraine still. Flows um, and all sorts of things. And so it doesn't seem like at least some of them don't seem super excited about having to pursue this, either politically, substantively, um, or both.
1: So, Molly, we are headed for a potential government shutdown in October. I emphasize potential because you, of course, uh, predicted. I did. I won, security. I won the you hot take won, contest. Yeah. You won the hot take contest with your prediction that there would not be a shutdown.
2: Would you like to amend your remarks, Dr. Reynolds, in light of the impeachment? <laughs> uh, that's, that's my question. But sorry, should qu- qu- well, finish the question. Let,
1: yeah. Let me, let me set this out because I, so I do think it, it would be useful to sort of take stock of where we are in terms of the potential of a shutdown and why McCarthy seemingly thinks that this move might help him avert that um, and if it actually will, if this kicks the can down the road, essentially how these two things interact.
0: Yeah. So I think it's important to remember that the same people in the House Republican Conference who are agitating most for impeachment, I should say exactly the same, many of those same people are also the same people who are agitating the most for a government shutdown, And their minds, like, or I should say, their willingness to vote for something that could actually pass the Senate and be signed by Joe Biden that would avoid a government shutdown. Like those votes are not going to change because Kevin McCarthy said they're going to do an impeachment inquiry. Like they were never going to vote for a continuing resolution um, to keep the government open past October 1st that the Senate would also vote for and that Biden would also sign. And they're not going to do so now just because Kevin McCarthy said we're having an impeachment inquiry. And so it is possible that one thing, one consideration here is he thinks that if he is going to have to make that part of his conference angry to keep the government open, that perhaps opening an impeachment inquiry helps make it less likely that they try to come after him as speaker. I am skeptical that they efforts to actually depose him as speaker would work. And so that really just gets us back to, like, he's going to have to do something that makes a lot of his conference unhappy and to keep the government from shutting down in three weeks, two weeks, three weeks. And just the question is, like, is he willing to do that or is he willing to shut down the government? And I think I still fundamentally think the answer is he would prefer not to shut down the government. Um, he would prefer not to take that blame, in part because I think he probably realizes that what the pro-shutdown part of his conference wants, like they're never going to get. They're not. There's no. There's no win for them here. In part because part of their whole reason for being is that they want to be mad about things, and like they're not going to stop wanting to be mad about things. Because Kevin McCarthy opened an impeachment inquiry.
2: It really does feel like yeah. someone needs to buy the entire House of Representatives a subscription to Headspace or the Calm app. Like they just they just need some more mindfulness. National
1: security is sponsored by <laughs> yeah,
2: we'll take it. We'll take it, guys. Burroughs furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice
2: dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on.
2: We're going from dysfunction in Congress to ah, great, more dysfunction in Congress let's let's talk about the quote unquote oversight of the Fulton County prosecution. So again, listeners, you may be aware that there's this little insignificant, tiny, not all important criminal uh, prosecution going on in Fulton County of Donald Trump uh, and his chief of staff and uh, you know a bunch more defendants. And this has made some people on Capitol Hill very upset including uh, the heretofore mentioned Jim Jordan, uh, who is the head of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, Last month, uh, he announced that he would be opening an investigation into the investigation of Donald Trump in Georgia. Uh, He sent a letter to Fulton County DA Fannie Willis, accusing her of uh, politicizing and uh, just just bringing a political prosecution. Uh, And then uh, Fannie Willis hit back in a very strongly worded letter Accusing Jim Jordan of obstructing the prosecution of Donald Trump and uh, defending the conduct of uh, defending her own conduct and that of her office. So the first question, and again, right back to you, Molly. What, in principle, can Jim Jordan and the House Judiciary Committee do, um, either in a quote unquote oversight role, if you want to sort of treat them as good faith actors, or in an obstruction role, if you don't want to treat them as good faith actors, of? the Fonnie Willis prosecution or Fonnie Willis's prosecution of Donald Trump or just of state prosecutions generally. It's sort of unclear what levers these people can pull except for writing really mean letters to one another.
0: I guess a couple of things. So one, as I understand it, there is like, Fannie Willis's office gets a little bit of, like, federal grant money to do things. So, like, one, if what they were trying to do is really make her life difficult, like, they could always pursue, you know, provisions in the appropriations bills that they can't pass, that would cut off funding to the uh, Fulton County DA's office. I, whatever I just, small I just love
2: money. the shade that you just, like, throw in there, right? If you'd be a quick listener, appropriations that they can't pass. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs>
0: I mean, it's, uh, it's true. fundamentally <laughs> like one of the biggest challenges here again to like take this out a little bit is that they have um, part of why they have no leverage in the negotiations over avoiding government shutdown generally is because they have up till now been largely unable to pass their own appropriations bills. But anyway, um, so that's like one specific thing I would say. More generally, um, there is this just, I think, idea that Jordan can try and Make Willis's life difficult, can send her letters asking for information um, if she chooses not to comply, can um, subpoena her, can try to take her to court. Um, The exact parameters of what he can ask for and what a court would say has a, to use Quinta's favorite term, uh, legitimate legislative purpose uh, as part of their oversight function is, I think, open. We know that if they were to try and litigate this, it would take forever. Also, Quinta can tell you that I've been talking repeatedly over the past week or so about the amount of time it took the Department of Justice to successfully prosecute Peter Navarro for contempt of Congress. The answer is 459 days. But so that, again, that's just to say that, like, even if they were to actually try and litigate this, it would take a really long time, whether Willis would have to comply with the subpoena, because whether a court would say that, like, the House Judiciary Committee has a legitimate legislative purpose in trying to oversee the activities of a district attorney's office in the state of Georgia. I don't know. But I think um, I think that's the way to think about it.
1: Yeah, I actually was, in fact, about to talk about legitimate legislative purpose, so for listeners who aren't as single-mindedly obsessed with this as me and Molly this of course traces back to the Trump v Mazars decision and be- and before uh, that to yes, like yes, there's a, yes, there's, yes. A,
0: there's a long line of jurisprudence that says that Congress that congressional committees oversight power has to have a legislative purpose um that phrase and concept took on a particular role in Trump v Mazars uh, but that is not its origin story.
1: Yes, very very fair. I, I guess I would say Mazars is kind of the point where that phrase starts to have a little bite and committees have to start demonstrating what their legislative purpose is rather than just kind of waving their hands around and declaring that it is so for good or for ill, right? And so as with that OLC memo that we were talking about, this is a little bit of kind of turnabout as fair play, right? Um, where the institutional authorities and limitations that maybe Democrats were very enthused about under Trump can now get flipped on their head and encourage and or create problems for Republicans now that they're in control of Congress. I will say it's a little hard for me to see, given Mazars, given everything, how much information Jim Jordan is going to be able to get about an ongoing prosecution. I mean never say never, but Alan, do you have any sense of that? I I'm I will totally admit that I'm talking kind of off the top of my head here, but my sense is that the ability of Congress to kind of start mucking around in an ongoing prosecution by a state government raise would raise like serious federalism questions, right?
2: I mean, it, it, it would raise serious federalism questions. I mean, to be honest, I think largely the issue is just as Molly alluded to, that this would be decided in litigation and that would take forever. But, let, you know, let me use this question to actually ask a question of my own that I think it segues into, which is, you know, at this point, we've talked mostly about the Jim Jordan side of things. I actually want to talk a little bit about the Fannie Willis side of things, because I will say, and maybe this is a bit of a spicy take, I, I did not love her response I I get where she's coming from. And again, I do not believe Jim Jordan is a good faith actor. At the same time, I don't think the use of the term obstruction was coincidental on her part, um, given that obstruction of justice is one of the things that at least the federal prosecution is charging Trump with, and it's just sort of generally in the air. I'm not that comfortable, frankly, with a state prosecutor, you know, accusing, not explicitly, but at least implicitly, a Congress person and uh, the head of the Judiciary Committee of a crime for asking for information about what is one of the most important, influential criminal cases in American history. Even to be clear, let's stipulate, right, that Jim Jordan is not exactly a model for you know good faith, disinterested public service. You know, I, I have always been a little bit uneasy with the idea that state. Prosecutions should ever be permitted of you know the president of the United States. I mean, again, I'm not implacably opposed to that, and I think actually we're very lucky in that it was Fonnie Willis of all people who is bringing this case because I think like you know of the many different kinds of state prosecutions, I think Fonnie Willis is very much a straight shooter and has a lot of integrity. But you know, ca- call me unhappy uh, with uh, the, the the tone of this, and you know, Quinta, tell me if I'm being sort of too prissy about this, and if I'm just sort of over rotating on the tone policing. Or, or, or if my grumpiness here again, even if at the end of the day, like, look, obviously, I'm not going to sit here defend Jim Jordan. Like, that's you know, even, even, even both sides, Rosenstein can't do that. Um, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know, right? So, I think part of what we may be encountering is that the dynamic, at least that I'm familiar with, in terms of prosecutors sending a kind of brushback pitch to Congress tends to be from DOJ, from the special counsel's office, right? And those are not elected prosecutors. There are different norms about how one behaves and the kind of rhetoric one uses. And, you know, folks at DOJ, I'm sure, would like to think that that is in part what makes them superior to their state counterparts. Um, But (laughs) whether or not you accept that, I think that that is part, you know, like... I would expect uh, some kind of letter from, you know, Jack Smith to be very settled and sober and not include things like those who wish to avoid felony charges in Fulton County, Georgia, should not commit felonies in Fulton County, Georgia, which is a, a line that Willis includes. It's
2: a good line. It's a good line. She's
1: a not. Wrong. She also at one point suggests that Jim Jordan can purchase a guide to the Georgia Rico statute for a cool two hundred and forty nine dollars uh, because he is not a member of
2: the Georgia bar. Funny Willis so, is not is not without rhetorical talents.
1: It's like it is kind of funny. It definitely does feel like she's like playing to you know resistance social media. Now she is an elected prosecutor. So the dynamic, just from like a structural position, the dynamic is different there. I will say I am a little uncomfortable with the sort of like, you know, enthusiasm for Willis among certain quarters, given uh, what I would argue is her likely overly expansive use of the Georgia Rico statute in other contexts and the truly appalling situation in the Fulton County jail, which she's done very little, if anything, I think, to to fix and so to the extent that this feeds into kind of like that whole vibe i'm a little uncomfortable with it but i do i guess i would say instinctively i agree with you but intellectually i i can understand why it's coming from a different place i don't know molly do you have thoughts yeah i guess i'll other? just add
0: two things the so one is this like i think one of the things that quinta you in particular are picking up on is again as i was saying before in the thinking about impeachments as like a fundamentally political question. Like this is also a fundamental, fundamentally a question of politics. Um, and there are, as you pointed out, an interaction here, Quinta, of like politics and norms that uh, is producing, I think some of what um, what we're seeing. The other thing um, to sort of draw out your um, hypothetical comparison between this letter and a. Uh, similar brushback letter that might come from the Department of Justice. I also think it's worth remembering that, you know, in Georgia, the whole reason that these people are being prosecuted is because they tried to overturn the results of the election like in the state. And so you can imagine why someone who is an elected official in a state where a whole bunch of people allegedly came in and tried to overturn the results of your presidential election in various ways might be like differently angry about, uh, about what, um, and just, and have, have their strategy shaped differently. is probably a better way to put it by those circumstances.
2: It would be very amusing to me if Fannie Willis becomes a progressive prosecutor icon after all of this. Oh, she
0: already is. <laughs>
2: That's hilarious. Oh, sweet, sweet progressives never learn.
1: I, uh, It makes me really mad, honestly, and I think that we got ourselves into this situation in part by doing things like, you know, allowing former prosecutors like, you know, Comey and Preet Bharara to write memoirs about how great the justice system is without engaging seriously with the critiques of their own actions, right? But that's a different conversation for a different time. Anyway, from the first branch of government to the godhead who rules us all from Mars, uh, where he has not, in fact, launched satellites, despite what Walter Isaacson seems to think. So Elon Musk, you've heard of him. There is a new biography out uh, by Walter Isaacson. And the book includes a passage that has some pretty explosive information, although... To some extent, it was reported at the time uh, saying that uh, last year, Musk had ordered uh, the Starlink service to be turned off near Crimea to essentially prevent Ukraine from launching an attack on an underwater drone attack on a Russian fleet there when this was published in an excerpt. It created uh, quite a hubbub um, and actually led to Isaacson walking back his statement by saying that uh, it wasn't that the service was enabled and Musk turned it off. It was that it had already been turned off and the Ukrainians didn't realize that or asked him to turn it back on and he refused. So setting aside the question of accuracy and biography, because I think we can go down many, many rabbit holes there. I do think that this you know, raises a lot of questions on topic that we talked about the other week when it comes to the uh, particular and unique power of Musk as this figure who is not just wealthy, uh, not just in control of a major social media platform, but has a pretty extraordinary influence over global connectivity and communications and how that enables him to kind of play a role in the prosecution of a major war. Um, So I believe that Isaacson excerpt has it. There's a bit where Musk kind of texts a Ukrainian minister and says, you should really think about negotiating with Russia. Like, thanks, man. We appreciate it. So Alan, what what do you think about this? You're currently sitting with your head in your hands.
2: (laughs) So I'm I'm sitting with my head in my hands because I'm about to do something that I just, I'm not, I don't want to do, which is defend Elon Musk. So I, I want to zoom out for a second. Oh, and no. Just talk, uh, oh no, indeed. Um, I just want to talk about what I'm almost certainly unoriginally going to call Musk derangement syndrome, right? So everyone has heard of this problem of quote unquote Trump derangement syndrome, which is the idea that, you know, particularly, let's say on the left, one can get so wrapped up in one's hatred of Donald Trump, very understandably so, um, that one just loses some basic critical faculties. I really think that there's a danger of this happening with respect to Elon Musk. I am not a fan of Elon Musk. I think that he has run Twitter into the ground and is just, you know, doing like really terrible things to our public discourse. I think he just mouths off about stuff he has no idea about and that his, um, uh, you know, thoughts on the Russia Ukraine war are not helpful and uh, ones that I do not associate with. But I do think there's a sense in which um, people's revulsion for a lot of Musk really can turn off their critical faculties and make him into this sort of like super villain that is I think neither true nor is frankly helpful to think about in that way. Let's talk about the sort of specific issue at hand, which is this question of what he did with respect to Starlink in Ukraine, and in particular, Ukraine's ability to conduct certain kinds of strikes on Russia. So unfortunately, I think the facts actually matter here quite a bit. Um, I think there actually is a very meaningful difference, you know, maybe it's like maybe, and maybe this is just sort of casuistic and a sort of trolley car difference. But I think there actually is a difference between Starlink was operating a particular way, Ukraine had access to it, and then Musk decided, no, 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 I don't want Starlink to be used by the Ukrainians in this particular attack. And so he turns it off in this particular attack. That's very, very different, right? then Starlink was not working in a particular way or the Ukrainians asked for more facilities and Musk said, yeah, I'm, I'm not that interested in that, right? To be honest, I, I think it is, even for someone like Musk, who certainly does not lack in self-confidence or self-assuredness, I, I am just skeptical that he would literally disallow a particular targeting move by the Ukrainians if they already had access to Starlink. It's possible, obviously, but like Musk is fundamentally... A rational business person, and so I just am doubtful of that. I also, I, I also think that there is, I mean, yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's sad that podcast is an auditory medium, and and I, I, I obviously get what Quint is talking about, given what he is doing with 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 Twitter, right? Uh, but he certainly has some rationality in him. Um, I think also the the kind of whisperings or the 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 the, the sense you get from the White House is not that Trump, that, 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 sorry, Trump, that Musk, (laughs) Freudian slip there, that Musk is acting as some sort of like rogue operator, pulling the strings behind the, 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 the Ukraine war. um, And that the white house, you know, even if Musk did what he was led to do would not be super unhappy with that, given that the white house is also spending a lot of its time trying to, you know, prevent Ukraine from accidentally starting world war three. So again, part of it is just this factual uncertainty, but I think the bigger problem here is this framing that like it's Musk's job to help the Ukrainians prosecute the war to the fullest possibility because he happens to have Starlink. Like, it's just not. Like, it should not be a private individual's job to engage in a decisive role in, like, a profound military conflict. And it's not Absurd for this person to want to have as little as possible to do with this. Now, it is the case that the facts on the ground are that Musk launched a bunch of satellites into low Earth orbit and those satellites are really helpful. And then he let Ukrainians use them. And so, like, it's kind of, it's kind of hard for him to say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with this. But at the same time, like, Musk didn't. Launch those satellites into low Earth orbit. Like, March, M- Musk launched those satellites into low Earth orbit because he saw a business opportunity that was legitimately adding value to the world. Like, Starlink is a kind of remarkable achievement in terms of global telecommunications. And it's not like any governments were competing with him. And it's not like any governments told him no. And so I, I, I think that people are just not appreciating that there is a real upside to the fact that this person has gotten to operate his businesses. Now, Twitter is not part of that upside. But Starlink, Tesla, SpaceX, these are remarkable achievements. And I'm not here to say that those remarkable achievements are due to Musk's genius. I, I just, I I don't know if that's true. I also don't care. But like, you know, Musk saw, a, uh, Musk saw a, a way to make a lot of money by providing a lot of value to humanity, which is through these satellites, which are legitimately very useful. And like, honestly, I don't know why we're spending so much time arguing about Musk and whether Musk is giving Ukraine enough Starlink and more just about look, if the US wants Musk to, you know, if the U- if the US wants Ukraine to have some capabilities, then, you know, US do that yourself or pay Musk to do that. But I just, I don't know, I, I find the Musk framing all this like super frustrating.
1: I mean, I think that Musk has your Freudian slip is apropos in part because Musk, like Trump, has a tendency, like he is a just a black hole of conversation, all right. Everything that you say about him just become sucked into this endless psychologizing. And I find it ultimately deeply uninteresting and profoundly sort of warped by great man theories of history that are ultimately distorting and not particularly illuminating. But I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to is there's this incredible and bizarre line in the Walter Isaacson, the excerpt that was published in the post that kicked all this off where he yeah, he has a late night phone conversation with Isaacson who's clearly thrilled by his access by the way and says and i yes, quote
2: walter isaacson is generally thrilled by his access that is oh, yes. a throughline in his written work
1: so this is musk quote how am i in this war starlink was not meant to be involved in wars it was so people can watch netflix and chill and get online for school and do good peaceful things not drone strikes i'm sorry This is like Silicon Valley idiocy of, oh, I'm going to do technology and so there won't be politics anymore. You're building a global satellite network and you're surprised when someone wants to use it for a war? Are you kidding me? Like, this is, this is a big, like, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, man. I'm, I, it is baffling to me that he is, Acting like faux naivete, oh, how did I end up in this position? You ended up in this position because you build a global satellite network.
2: So granted, granted. And and if the question is, is Musk's faux naivete annoying? I will happily cosign that it is deeply annoying. And if the question is, does Silicon Valley think with a sufficient level of sophistication about its technology, I will happily cosign anyone who says no. So all of that is true on the table. My point is just that we actually... like. In, in in our capitalist system, for better or for worse, I happen to think for better, but it's kind of the only game in town, we rely on private individuals to build a bunch of stuff and push a technological frontier, right? And then we rely on government to come in and say, this is a really cool thing, but there's like a piece of it that's going to have real profound geopolitical ramifications. And so we're going to come in and we're going to uh, actively regulate either f- through informal or probably in this case, would have been informal channels. That's the way it should work. But saying, well, Musk should either have to choose between launching Starlink, uh, and then apparently having to play a non-trivial role in the war in Ukraine, or, well, he just shouldn't launch Starlink to begin with. That's a bad choice because we want people like that to launch Starlink, um, even if their motives are not, you know, public-spirited as Musks uh, would like us to believe that they are, uh, but rather purely pecuniary. And, and that's what I find so frustrating, right? It's like, it's a good thing that Musk launched Starlink. And, we, uh, and, and and if there are some sort of negative, weird global externalities, like that's fine. And the government should regulate that. And maybe Musk should lose money on that. But like the government has to step in at some point. But like th- this binary choice, I think, is just not a good way of developing our technological society.
1: I, I mean, I guess I would say at that point, like, yes, the government does need to step in. And the question is, does it have the tools that it needs to step in? And also, how would, you know, not just the executive, but also the courts and, yes, Mali, Congress, um, what would they make of this? Because I worry that, you know, this, this has become a serious problem, but it's also become deeply politicized because of Musk's own posturing. And so my worry would be, you know, Even if we reach the point where, yes, something needs to be done about Starlink, if there were any kind of effort by the Biden administration to take action here, that it would run headlong into, you know, Jim Jordan um, and his cohort saying they're only going after Elon Musk because, you know, they hate free speech in America and apple pie.
0: Yeah, I would just, I don't have much to add here except to say that the last thing, the efforts to keep us aid to ukraine flowing needs is like a derailing of that debate by attaching elon musk and his politics to the question of like what should the u.s be doing in ukraine i think that there is um a topic we didn't talk about when we talked about government funding is the prospects for another round of robust um, aid to Ukraine um, this fall. And I think that's that's like another issue in this big stew of, um, of issues. And I think that um, it is in part being uh, like kept on track by Mitch McConnell, to whom, for whom this seems to be very important, and he's been very successful at keeping, House, uh, excuse me, Senate Republicans together on this issue. But I think um, if you are a person who cares about that, um, you really don't want like the Musk story getting attached to the debate over more funding for uh, aid to Ukraine. Well, it would not be rational security if we did
1: not close out with some object lessons. That's me doing my best Scott Anderson impression. Molly, let me start with you.
0: Sure. So, um, there is uh, within the Lawfare cinematic universe a group, uh, a faction of us who um, are quite interested uh, in things related to the troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, I count, uh, I count Tyler uh, at a minimum as uh, in this camp. Um, and so, for for those folks and for anyone else, um, I have a, a PBS uh, documentary series to recommend to you that is called "Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland." Um, um, which is a um, uh, I believe it's five parts on the troubles and it uh, uh, is sort of through the eyes of ordinary um, uh, people it is ex- it is both very hard to watch and very compelling um, and so i um, I recommend it to all of you Alan what do you have for us
2: so my recommendation is I think refreshingly for me who mostly just does TV and Fruit syrup recommendations. By the way, I just want to thank my other RATSEC listenership. There, multiple people have emailed me in response to my uh, last object lesson, which was about uh, uh, South Korean plum syrup called Chung. Uh, I've gotten like recommendations. Someone identified the, the plum tree in my backyard for me. So now I finally know what it is. I just I love the RATSEC community. So thank you for this. My object lesson this week is a, a wonderful book. Um, I am very late to the party. It's, it's over a decade old now. It's from 2012 called The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller she uh wrote that and then also wrote a kind of a f- sort of follow-up book called um uh Circe her thing is that she basically is doing kind of retellings of uh the, the Iliad and the Odyssey but sort of in contemporary fictional form i mean it's amazing i haven't read Circe yet though that's next on my list the song of achilles is a retelling of the uh of the the Iliad which is uh, uh, which is a, a, about a period of in the trojan war in particular about uh, achilles' The, the great hero who refuses to fight and then ultimately is is uh, brought to fight against the Trojans by the death of his. In the Iliad, it's it's uh, somewhat um, ambiguous, his sort of best friend, Patroclus, but pretty clear is, is his lover. Um, and so Miller has taken that story and and done sort of a full kind of building's roman from the perspective of Patroclus. And it's, it's amazing. It's just, it's amazing. The book is amazing. It's beautifully done. It's just a wonderful introduction to the Homeric myths, but mostly just as a piece of literature, like it, it it moved me in a way that fiction has not moved me in in some time, um, and so I just enormously enormously recommend that book, whether or not you you think you're interested in the Iliad or not. I suspect that for like real classic heads, um, there's like a ton of. Like fun Easter eggs woven in throughout the book that I, who have not read you know, the classics um, since high school, uh, mostly missed. Uh, but just standing on its own, it's fabulous. Uh, the Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller.
1: All right. And I'm also going to come in with a television recommendation. Uh, I have been watching the HBO series Telemarketers. Um, I've only seen the first episode. It has their three episodes and it just wrapped. And it is this incredible sort of Gonzo journalism is is not quite the right descriptor, but it it's about a group, a sort of t- scummy telemarketing marketing company that would call folks and tell them that they were fundraising on behalf of you know stuff like the Fraternal Order of Police and so on, um, and pocket an extraordinary amount of the money. So it's a great sort of raw material for a you know muckraking documentary. But the kind of twist, such as it is, is that the documentary is made by this person, uh, Sam Lipman Stern, who was employed by this scummy telemarketing company after he dropped out of high school because it was the only place that would give him a job, um, and has was sort of filming throughout his time there, and essentially decides that he's going to, you know, uncover all of the shady dealings of this company and take them down. So it's this sort of fascinating mix of genuine muckraking with a sort of personal story, you know, gonzo journalism edge, and the the main characters are very much part of the story, not only in their sort of uh, outrage at the people they're working for, but also in their bumbling and less than competent sort of attempts at journalism um, and digging up information. Um, I found the first episode totally gripping, and I am uh, looking forward to continuing watching it. All right. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can visit lawfaremedia.org for our show page with links to past episodes and for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors. You can follow us on x Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review. You can also sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan, and we are, of course, edited by the wonderful Jem Patya Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan, and our special guest, Molly Reynolds, I'm Quinta Dresic, and we'll talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it